Welcome to The Mend, a podcast to learn about service and support for victims and survivors of crime, sponsored by the Center for Crime Victim Services here in the state of Vermont. My name is Anna Nasset, and I am your host for this bi-monthly show. Um, today we have a two-part show, so we're going to be doing back-to-back episodes, and I am beyond delighted and honored to have these three guests. Um, I was just telling them that I'm fangirling out today because I deeply admire all three of these people. So today from all the way from New Zealand, we have Sue Russell. From here in Vermont, we have Amy Farr. And from Washington, DC, we have Ann Seymour. And we are gonna be looking today at Sue's story of survivorship turned into advocacy, community response, um, and the movement of victims' rights and how it's changed over the years because we have some legends on here who have really pushed for that change to happen. Um, As I like to share, the show was created to take a deeper look at services, organizations, and concepts for victims and survivors of crime, as well as how community can be involved. We wanna acknowledge our healing process and provide resources, not just here in our state, but that can translate throughout the country and even the globe today, which is amazing. I always like to begin with a trigger warning Our goal is to create a safe place to share and to learn, but within that, sometimes we talk about um, sensitive subject matter, and that's definitely going to come up today, so I always ask people to listen at their own discretion. So I'd like to share a little bit more about my amazing guest today, Um, and like I said, I'm going to be very transparent. This is a very special episode for me, so might get choked up a little bit. So my first guest today is Sue Russell, as I said, joining us from New Zealand. Sue is a former Mad River Valley resident from here in Vermont. And though we have not met in person, Sue has been my pen pal and dear friend for the last few years. In 1992, Sue survived an attack and nearly lost her life. I will invite her today to share her story in her own words. Um, Sue went on not only to survive this attack, but she began to shift her focus into speaking out against violence, working as a victim advocate, consulting with the Office for Crime, and being at a voice at a time when victims' voices were rarely heard. The fact that myself and others are alive today is directly linked to Sue's voice and resiliency. Sadly, when the man who attacked Sue was released several years ago, like many of us, she no longer felt safe in her community and eventually relocated to New Zealand where she now resides with her husband. This leads me to introducing Amy Farr. Amy is a longtime victim advocate for the state of Vermont's Attorney General's Office. I admired Amy from the very first time I heard her speak a few years ago and found a deep connection with her when she was advocating for me preparing for trial. Amy's wisdom, knowledge, and empowerment can be heard each time a victim opens their mouth to speak. And this is true of her working with Sue Russell over the years leading up to the release of the offender. She also helped with the Mad River Valley community response upon the release of the offender in Sue's case. And lastly, we have Ann Seymour, um, another just absolutely incredible legendary guest. Ann Seymour has over 36 years in the victim advocacy work and movement. She is the co-founder of and senior advisor to the Washington DC based national nonprofit Justice Solutions and the National Mass Violence Violence Victimization Resource Center at Musk in Charleston. 
She began her career in 1984 as the Director of Public Affairs for the National Office of Mothers Against Driving. And from, 19, from 1985 to 1993 as a co-founder and director of the Communications of National Victim Center, now National Center for Victims of Crime. And as a member of the US Congressional Victims Rights Caucus Advisory Group, along with many other nationally and internationally recognized organizations and agencies. She has won numerous awards, as have all three of you, written and contributed to various books, and her work has changed the course of millions of lives, um, including Sue Russell, including mine. Um, like I said, fangirl moment for me here to have you legendary women on here to share your work. Thank you so much for everything you've been doing for so many years. Um, so I'd like to start off this two-part episode by first talking with Sue. Um, I said we want to look at victims' rights and the advocacy movement has changed over the years. But in order to do that, I wanted to give Sue some time to share the parts of her story and attack that she feels comfortable sharing with the audience today. So I'll leave it over to you, Sue. Well, thank you, Anna. Um, I'll be brief here and rather blunt because there's so much more to talk about. Uh, and I thank you, Anna, for warning the audience about triggers. So a man who lived in the same small town as I and someone I didn't know, but who knew me and had most likely stalked me for months prior to the assault, kidnapped me, raped me, and beat me uh, pretty severely. And um, that occurred on the 19th of June, 1992. So we found out three years after the assault that the offender in this case got in a fight with my husband's then business partner. Um, they both drove the same type of truck with the same logo and um, my husband's truck went off the road uh, one night uh, uh, due to icy roads and he decided that it was a short walk home, so he walked home. <clears throat> and the next day we went to his truck and noticed that it had been broken into and several identifiable information like checks, Christmas cards, because it was around that time of year, uh, had been taken. But um, we wouldn't learn about this until three years after my assault and that we would learn that he was indeed the offender who broke in and stole all these things. So on the night in question, the offender came up to me at a pub that I was with, uh, with my friends and said some sort of derogatory comment to me, but to this day, I don't really recall what it was. Um, and I just kind of walked away and went back to my friend's uh, um, table. So if he had been stalking me uh, prior to that, I, I was not aware of it. So he slashed two of my car tires that night and followed me. And realizing that I had a flat tire, I pulled into an inn's parking lot to use the phone. Now, back in those days, there were no cell phones and the inn had closed for the night. So the offender followed my car into the parking lot and he asked me if I wanted a ride. And at that time, innocence, ignorance, and faith in people were all a tribute to mine. So I grabbed the few things that I had and got into the car. But we didn't, we know now 
that his intent to kidnap me was, um, you know, he would have kidnapped me whether I went with him or not. So he drove past my road turn off and that was when I knew I was in trouble. And then he pulled into a road turn off and um, raped me. And for trying to fight him off, he punched me in the face, he broke my nose and crushing one of my eye sockets, eye orbits. And then he drove three miles up a forest road and grabbed me pretty much by my neck out of the car and began choking me. And at that point I passed out. And hours later, I woke up and I realized I'd been hurt pretty bad. Uh, I had been a trained emergency medical technician. So I knew I was hurt pretty bad. I felt something very sharp up here on my head and I was naked. So after I was able to finally sort of get up, get some balance, I, I was told that I actually crawled. They saw crawl marks a tenth of a mile through the woods to where there was five teenagers that were camped for the night. And I recall whispering in front of the tent, please help me, please help me, I've been raped. And I remembered the young boy opening the tent doors just in shock as I stood there trying to cover myself up with this only piece of material that I had. But he did all the right things. He and the others got out of the tent um, they put a big, large t-shirt on me and they put me in the tent, um, in his warm sleeping bag and kept me awake, uh, because I had a very severe head injury and, and it's really important that you try and keep somebody conscious. Uh, they then sent two of the teenagers down, I think they walked about three miles down to the nearest house and they phoned for the, an ambulance. And I remember when the ambulance arrived, I heard the sound of birds chirping. And to this day, it is a sound that I relish uh, because it means I'm alive. So at that point I was rushed to by ambulance to a hospital to stabilize my injuries as the offender had hit me in the head with a tire iron and fractured my skull. And I recalled that at this first hospital, I had a rape exam done on me while still being strapped to the backboard by a male doctor. So nowadays we appreciate the fact that there are SANE nurses, sexual assault nursing examiners. And at that point I was transferred to a trauma hospital where I would undergo surgery and be in intensive care for about 48 hours. At this time, I also recalled meeting detective Jeff Cable who treated me with kindness, sensitivity and respect. He had followed the ambulance to the first hospital and he instructed the doctor to do whatever it took, as long as it didn't interfere with my medical treatment, to gather any and all evidence, hence the rape exam. But I would not find this information out for, from, for about 15 years later when I was having a conversation with the same detective because we had, this detective and I had done some work together in terms of public education. Uh, so after this initial questioning, both in the emergency room and after surgery, the detective would go out and lead an investigation and he captured the offender four days later. So that in a nutshell is my story. 
Thank you so much, Sue, for sharing. Um, I know your story and I know you've told it many times and it just definitely had me sitting here just hitting the gut. I'm just so, so glad you're alive. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Um, I would love to hear Amy and Anne, what it's like for you two. I mean, you've known her story for so many years, what it's like to, to revisit that today. Um, let's start with Anne. Well, we always say in our field about how important the power of the personal story is. And no matter how many times I hear about Sue's awful traumatic experience, it touches me as if I've um, heard it the first time. And I just also feel that when I listen to Sue, um, um, it just reminds me of um, the importance of our work. I mean, you mentioned that the teenagers who cared for you you had good medical care. You had a kind detective in 1992. I will never forget that. Um, and that it's just so important that we have um, good professionals and just plain old regular people who are kind to victims. And as you said, who who treat you um, who treat you with respect. And and uh, I can't believe in 1992. It's been almost 30 years, right? Yeah, that just that just shook me shook me to my core. So. So I second and thank you, thank you for, for sharing your experience. It's always really important for people to understand what crime survivors go through. Absolutely. Yeah, that's true. It has been 30 years, which is just, um, you were so new in your field at that time, Anne. I mean, it's just amazing all the work that has been done. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts, Amy. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I have to start by thanking Sue for sharing, and I too have heard it, your story. Um, and I think just over the course of my career and the times that I've heard it, it, it impacts me differently. And today, when you're telling it, and I think about um, one of the pieces that sticks out for me is kind of that thought that your reflection on, I wanted to trust people and I wanted to, um, you know, this is who I was. And I think about my own children and I want them to have that same belief in humanity. And then I think about also, um, you know, the way that we, um, society can talk about victims and talk about like their um, kind of the victim blaming that happens. And in this situation, there's absolutely nothing that you could have done. And you're so incredibly, incredibly vulnerable. And also just how amazing you are that um, you survived this. And I am always blown away by that. And I'm also today thinking about the campers and I'm thinking about that impact on them. And I don't think I've ever thought about them as much as I thought about it today when you were telling that story. Um, so there's our few thoughts. I think we could have a whole episode on the impact of Sue's story, actually, but I'll stop there. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, Sue, so did you want to follow up with something? I, yes, I did. I wanted to let um, our audience know that the two teenagers, um, one of them I've kept in touch with all these years, but back in that time, about a year after my assault, four out of those five teenagers came up to our house and planted an apple tree in our property in Vermont. And um, um, the 
two of them got married and had a, a little girl. And I've always kept in touch with them. Um, and so that was pretty amazing because I was able to see how that, how at least for them um, that had a resounding impact on them um, and that they kept in touch. That was just amazing. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think everyone will enjoy hearing that. Um, as we reflect on back on Sue's story and the history of the victims' rights movement, Sue, can you share what your experience was like in the beginning dealing with the criminal justice and legal systems? Um, I mean, it sounds like you had a really good detective, which is amazing, but just what that process was like, because we probably weren't as far within treating victims with empathy back then as we're trying to slowly get to. Right. I would say um, going through the criminal justice system was very painful. Uh, however, I was very fortunate that at that time, victim advocates had been in place for a few years. And I had a, a wonderful a victim advocate named uh, Dina Gwynn, who um, helped educate me, spearhead me through that, uh, walked me through many, many hurdles. And um, perhaps the most grueling part of that process was having to give a deposition to the defense attorney. So that was really grueling. Um, that was almost like being on the witness stand and getting, you know, cross-examined. Um, and in my situation, um, we, um, we had choices to make. So we could either go to trial or do a plea agreement. And the state prosecutor in that instance said, well, I think I have an 80% chance of winning this case. And I thought, well, that's still 20% left out there. So um, nah, let's just try and go with the plea agreement. So I did, um, I did do that. And um, I was able to do a victim impact statement. I do remember that I had some family that came up to be with us on that day. Um, I remember wearing sunglasses because I had to sit across from that offender. Uh, I remembered wearing somebody else's clothes so I wouldn't have to wear those clothes again. Um, it was just those little things that really helped me get through that process. And uh, I was grateful to provide a victim impact statement. And I believe that after I had said that, you could hear a pin drop in that courtroom. There was not a sound. And um, we were disappointed with the outcome because the prosecutors were advocating for 50 years plus. And um, the defense was advertising, or excuse me, it was um, advocating for, I think it was um, 20 to 30 years. And in the end, he got 25 years, but with good time, um, 25 to 30 years, but with good time, he was able to get out, uh, I think it was 23 years. I'd have to do some math there, but. Yeah. 
Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for bringing up victim impact statements. It's such a hugely important part. And I mean, Amy helped me write mine. So that's very special to me. But um, it is such a hugely important part. And it's that place where your voice finally actually gets to be heard. Because whether you go to trial or plea, like when you're speaking, you're just having to say all of these facts, you're not getting to say all of the effects. And I know for me, there was something really cathartic about that, of being able to sit and write that. And yeah, like as I as I was writing, I constantly was also throwing up because it was just so emotional, like everything coming out. Um, but thank mm. you for sharing that with people. Um, Anne and Amy, what are your thoughts about what services were for victims of a crime 30 years ago versus where they're at now and how that's really pushed your work um, to to see more advocating for victims. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and start with Anne again. Well, I'm gonna say to Amy on services because she is from Vermont where y'all Think really good community based and, and oh, system based victim services for, for many, many years. But, uh, you know, to give you context, Sue was attacked in 1992, victims of crime. What? Sorry? Oh, you're freezing a little bit. Uh oh, y'all are frozen. Why don't we go over to Amy and Anne, you might want to pop off and then pop back on. I'm going to send it over to Amy. Okay. Um, hopefully she'll, she'll come back because I was really interested in hearing what she has to say, but I think that, you know, certainly in the last 30 years, we've learned a lot. And I think um, I can talk about Vermont mostly and, you know, certainly we have a very, um, I think, robust advocacy community in Vermont. And I think that has only grown in the last 30 years. Um, but I think system wise, we have also learned a lot about the best way. And I'm, I, I'm rooted in the criminal justice system. So a lot of what I have to say is gonna, that's gonna be my context, but we've learned how to investigate crimes better. We've learned how to team better with our partners in a way that, you know, I don't think we did well, like so many years ago. And I also think we've learned how to change laws that, um, you know, the system is still very offender based and centered on the offender, but we've learned how to like fix some of those depositions so that they're not so horrible. They're still horrible. And I think Vermont is one of the few states that if the only state that does depositions, but we can, they can, we can have more protections allowed for victims. And then I think about other laws that have changed and some of them driven by um, the advocacy of victims. And there was, um, you know, another um, uh, family in our state that helped enact um, a nationwide DNA database. And that was their advocacy based on, you know, their experience when they had, um, the death of their daughter. So I think laws have changed a lot. I think we have a long way to go. I think systems have changed and we have a long way to go. I think there's a lot of us, um, but there's a lot of change that has happened that I think has been good, um, but still a long way to go. Are you back, Anne? 
I, I think I am. Yeah, you are. You You're me? good. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Sorry about that. I've been, I've had a kooky internet all week. Um, I, I just wanted to give context for the year uh, 1992, if I may. Um, it wasn't that long, 10 years, a decade after President Reagan's Task Force on Victims of Crimes final report was published. That was the first time gave our field, a very nascent field, a framework for victims' rights and victim services. Um, it wasn't until 1983 and 84 that we had a federal office for victims of crime. And then, of course, the passage of the Victims of Crime Act, which laid out uh, policy and funding for victim services um, uh, nationwide. And uh, I, I'm going to agree with Amy. I mean, services, I think, were few and far between. Um, we, we didn't coordinate as much as we do today, and we weren't as specialized as much as we are today. But um, I mean, Sue mentioned now, for example, that we have sexual assault nurse examiners, which is one of the most amazing things um, for, for rape victims that, that in, in the entire country. It's just it's made the awful experience a little bit less awful. And then I think also, um, I do have to mention that we, we've done a lot more research on victims. We listen to victims and um, we hear the power of their personal stories. But I'd like to share in 1994 um, at the National Center for Victims of Crime, we published Rape in America, a report to the nation. And that was at a time when the Justice Department was telling us that 92,000 women were raped every year. Uh, rape in America um, found that 683,000 women are raped every year. So think about 683,000, 92,000. And I'm like, Sue, I'm not going to do the math in my head. But they were way off. And we learned that uh, most women don't report rapes. We learned that women don't report because they fear being blamed for being shamed and going through a very traumatic criminal justice or juvenile justice system in addition to um, the trauma of the crime. And so I, I say that because I think a lot of what we've learned from survivors themselves um, and from a lot of good research over the past, I'm gonna say 25 or 30 years has guided us to be, I think a lot more evidence-based and a lot more sensitive to what crime victims need. And, and Sue knows my, I always say, if one of my stump questions when I train is, how do you find out what a survivor needs? And you all know the answer is very simple, you ask. And I think back in the day, we didn't always ask survivors. We just knew that we thought what was best and we tried to protect them and we were well-intended. And now again, we listen to survivors and they guide the services that we provide and they make it easier for the next survivor who goes behind them because we as advocates get better every single time that we, we help a, a crime survivor. So. You know, get, I'm thinking back to 30 years ago. It's, it's night and day um, between today's victim services, which are diverse and robust. Um, and in, in 92, I, you know, I, I think we were pr doing pretty good. We, were, we did the best we could with the limited resources we, we, we have. And, and Sue just talking about her advocate. I mean, my heart swells with pride and knowing Amy for so many years um, that, you know, to, to, to be in a state like Vermont where victims are put first where they are at the, the apex of what happens to them and what happens in the system. That's how it should be. Yes, 
Yes, absolutely. I agree. And, you know, I echo that, like, you, you just have to ask us. And I remember, like, one experience that was with Amy of just being like, she just asked me, like, the simplest things that she would ask me was like, oh, my gosh, no one's asked me this before. And it really gave me voice and gave me empowerment within this process that was so brutal to feel like I had some agency. And I can see how that's really grown over the years. Um, that's awesome. So I think we're going to do one more question before we take a little break. Um, so one thing I think is remarkable about Sue is that Sue really took what happened to her and turned it into advocacy and shifted her whole world into advocacy because of what happened to her. Um, and can you share a bit about what that process was for you? What pushed you to make that change? Um, and then what you did with it. Well, a few months after my assault and before the criminal proceedings really got going, I read a book by Miguel Shear. Her first book was called Still Loved by the Sun, a Rape Survivor's Journal. Now, that book, when I first got it, I think it was my aunt who sent it to me from Seattle, Washington. And I looked at the cover and I was like, oh, that is scary. And so I was with a friend and she started leafing through it and she said, nah, actually, I think you would really find some help with this book. So I read it in like three days, boom, 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 boom. And then I read it again. Um, and actually Rob and I traveled out to Seattle, Washington in 1994 to meet her because her book and her story first assisted in identifying the steps of the criminal justice system that I might have to go through. And secondly, inspired me to return to school, to study writing, to share my story with others. Uh, I went so far as to go on to obtain my master's in public policy with a focus on criminal justice policies, which included restorative justice as this concept was just uh, taking hold in Vermont in the early 2000s. I met Anne Seymour in 1999 at a Vermont restorative justice conference and meeting her and with her connections, I was catapulted literally into the national victims rights movement or the national criminal victims movement. Um, Amy, I'm not really sure when I met you to be honest, um, but it was years before the offenders release. And you too helped me in so many ways along my journey. Um, and most especially during the years of 2014 and 2015 when Rob and I were preparing for the offenders release. And so thank you both. Without your help, I, I probably wouldn't be where I am today. Amazing. Um, yeah, these two have a way of catapulting people. And I mean, I will be at like the most random places and the most random meetings with people from all over the country that say to me, do you know Sue Russell? <laughs> and I always just have to laugh. I'm like, funny story. She's my pen pal. <laughs> so her, yeah, Sue's work and voice has long, long carried on and created so much change. Um, I would love to hear from both Anne and Amy how you were pulled into um, the work of advocacy and victims' rights. Um, I'm just going to start with Anne again. 
Well, um, I actually, an undergraduate, I studied, back then it was called social welfare um, and corrections. And my goal in life was to be a probation officer or work in prisons. I mean, that is what I wanted to do. Uh, and I remember doing like summer internships and, and visiting a lot of prisons. And my senior year, I visited a prison in Southern California, did the tour, was just so interested in everything. I really saw that as a career. And then um, I met with the warden on my way out and he said, what's a pretty little thing like you thinking about working in a place like this prison? And I went, I don't want to work in prisons anymore, you asshole. And, oh, sorry. <laughs> to pass. And I, I'm always grateful to that douchey warden for making me go, this is not something I want to do. I mean, literally that spun me on a dime. So I went into working. Um, I love public policy. I worked in the California legislature, got a little tired of running pretty arduous campaigns on the side. I applied to a blind ad. That's literally how I got into the victim's field. I was lucky to have uh, Janice Harris-Lord, who I think is the best victim advocate in the entire universe and beyond, um, to be my mentor at Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Um, and then when we started the National Victim Center, it's when I really got to start traveling around to the states. And I have to tell you, just looking at the giant gaps in victim services, uh, I mean, I, I just couldn't believe how much there wasn't in place. And, and the other thing, I mean, I love back then, that was before we had internet. I mean, fax was a big thing for us. And they would pass like the first Victims Bill of Rights passed in, in Michigan. Um, and then the next year, four states passed the exact same bill, didn't change a word. And then 10 more states passed it with a little bit of tweaking. And we were like a telephone chain, a gossip chain of victims' rights. That's what we did back in the day. Because I always quote Bob Dylan, when you got nothing, you got nothing to lose. And that's kind of how I think we all felt back then, that there was so much that needed to be um, to be done. And I still count my blessings. I call myself an accidental tourist in the field, but it was the best wrong turn that I could have taken um, professionally and personally. Look at me, I get to hang out with you three, nothing better than that. I agree. I don't think any of us get into this work because that was our original plan. <laughs> um, but I love hearing people's history and how they got to it. And yeah, for Friday afternoon, this is a pretty good crew to be hanging out together. <laughs> I love my colleagues, each one of you. Um, Amy, how did you get pulled into this work? What called you to this? Um, well, I mean, I feel like, I don't know. I just feel like I, I grew up in a family full of public servants and um, I don't know, social justice and community was always kind of just a value that I grew up around. And I went to school to become a teacher um, but I always ended up teaching in alternative settings. And so I was always around students and kids that um, usually didn't have uh, supportive families or families at all. And so it was this population that needed a voice. And I, I think that's just kind of how I was there and why I felt okay there and like effective there. And then a friend of mine, um, this was back when, you know, this was, late 80s and child advocacy centers were being, um, you know, kind of established around the country. And a friend of mine said, hey, you know, come apply for this job in a child advocacy center. And I think it was one of the first ones in the state. And um, I didn't know anything about <laughs> the law, 
criminal justice. Like I was way out of my league and, um, but I was young and, you know, I guess brave enough to maybe stupid enough to try it. And I kind of have been there ever since. And um, I always tell people like it was a really big learning curve to even understand what the heck was going on. Um, but then, you know, kind of got hooked on it. And that's where I've been ever since. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. And yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's interesting, like Sue and I both got into this because of what happened to us. And but we couldn't have been called into this work without you two and just everything you've done and just being in this field since the get go is so important. Um, so we're going to wind up this part one of this episode. Um, so everyone listening, stay tuned for part two. Um, uh, for anybody who wants to know, you can always email me, Anna at standupresources.com for more information on our shows. I'm Anna Nasset, and we'll be back with part two of The Mend shortly.